Welcome to the Optimize Your Life podcast in association with popproductivity.com, the self-improvement podcast designed for you to optimize your human performance through evidence-based strategies, practical tips, and advice to take your productivity and well-being to the next level. Sit back and enjoy with your host, Peter Shaw. Yeah, so I'm delighted today to be joined by author and lecturer, Brian Penny. Brian, how are you getting on? I'm getting on great, Peter. Really good, really good. Having a good day. For a lot of listeners, this is probably a slight change attack from what they're used to. Um, we generally, uh, are, we have s people on, we have nutritionists, we kind of look through different areas of people's lives. I suppose I really, your story resonated with me uh, when I listened to a couple of podcasts and, and heard people talk about your book. In terms of your story and how you overcame so much adversity, how you changed your life uh, around for the better. Do you want to give maybe some people that have never heard of you um, or heard of your story a little bit of an indication of what you went through and I suppose your journey so far? Yeah, super. So I, I always start um, at, at the very start, like it was from the moment I came into this world and um, I, I was struggling with trauma. So I came, I came into the world um, with a condition known as intestinal malrotation. So in layman's terms, basically my guts were twisted. And what a lot of people don't know, and I only realized this doing research when writing my book, that it was only in 1985 did the medical practice of the world realize that infants experience pain like normal human beings, which is absolutely crazy. So up until that date, when infants went under um, the knife during surgery, um, they didn't get a general anesthetic. So I was, um, when I was born, I had that condition and I was brought into hospital a couple of weeks later and I was misdiagnosed a few times. There was a few problems around that, but I was finally, I lost half my birth weight. I was rushed to surgery, had an operation without a general anesthetic. And I'm sure many infants did at that time as well, um, as was the practice. But um, I, I struggled with a lot of complications from the surgery as well. I was never given any pain medication uh, for that either. And since, uh, since, since I've, I've recently gone back to college and I've done a degree in psychology, and my learnings have been that, that um, basically I was programmed as an organism to fear the world and all the associations with it, with the pain that I was actually struggling with. So I believe that set me up, uh, that trauma set me up for a life of anxiety, it primed me for a life of anxiety. And I suppose I had other adversity to deal with when I was when I was younger as well. Like I came from um, I came from a loan family, but it was a family with a lot of alcohol issues as well. And when I, I remember our memories from about being six to eight years of age, I remember just um sort of looking behind the curtain um from my window as a kid, just for hours and hours and hours waiting for my mum and dad to come home from the pub drunk and I knew to be driving. So I was always very aware of my dad was a drink driver and I'd be just absolutely filled with anxiety. I remember every single car that came down the road, I was hoping it would be them and it wouldn't be and they wouldn't come home till late, probably hundreds of cars each night, the hopes would build, the car would pass the anxiety would come back and that's just a huge memory that I have as a child. And I do other traumas as well and I believe these traumas set me up for a life of anxiety and for, for anyone that hasn't heard of me and what my book is about and what my story is about, um, I struggled with anxiety throughout my, my whole life and at the age of uh, at the age of 14 I started messing around with drugs but when I was 17 I decided to do heroin. Um, for the first time. I actually, me and a couple of my friends, we only decided to do it once and that was the plan. But um, I describe my first night doing heroin. Um, it's a whole chapter in my book. I dedicate a whole chapter to the book of it and I call it Falling in Love. And I just remember that night that it was like 
heroin wrapped a warm blanket, a warm, soft blanket and wrapped it around me soul. And in the comparison to who I was as this anxious person, it just felt like the savior, the thing I was looking for my entire life. I often say I was never given that general anesthetic as an infant. And it was like I was looking for it all my life to help me with and anesthetize that anxiety. And when I was 17, I found my anesthetic. And I literally spent the next uh, 20 years as an addict, 15 and then years chronically addicted to heroin. It functional to an extent, but um, chronically addicted to heroin. And that was really my journey up until I was 35 years of age. Um, my life just went downhill, further and further downhill. I stopped functioning. I lost my job. I lost everything in my life, basically, every relationship in my life, my health. If anyone has ever, I don't know whether you've seen the pictures of me before and after, but um, there's pictures of my website as well. And I just look like a completely different person. I look like I'm 20 years older in 2011 than I do now in 2020 when you see the comparison pictures. And for me, um, in 2013, that's when I actually got clean. It was it was basically time for me to sink or swim, to live or die. Like I was on death's door. And I have what I describe, what I can only describe as I had a perspective shift. So I was brought, I was um, looking to go into a detox facility for the first time in my life. I actually looked for help after I lost everything. And I was told that um, I was a safety risk for detox because I was at risk of having a, a convulsive seizure. I didn't even know what that was at the time because of the amount of benzodiazepines on top of heroin and methadone and everything else I was taking. So I decided to do, there was something driven inside of me saying, you've got to do this now. This is your chance. You really have to get clean now. You can't wait because they wanted me to wait about four to six weeks for the drugs to come out of my system. I said, no, I'm just going to stop stop doing the benzos now and see how I get on. And what happened to me that night was I did have a seizure. So as was expect, as they warned me, I did have a seizure. And in me, in me old the house I used to live in, um, I start my book, the prologue of my book starts with a scene where I woke up and me sitting around the floor covered in blood. And I actually had a grand mal convulsive seizure where it, 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 for anyone that doesn't know, a seizure is when all the neurons fire at the same time, like a cascading effect in your brain at the same time. And all of my muscles convulsed and the sensory perceptions, that sensory sensations that went with it. And I'd actually split the center of my tongue through, through the convulsions. I bit into my tongue and split the center of my tongue. That's where all the blood was coming from. So I was rushed to hospital and um, I was rushed and um, I was in, I don't remember much. My family rallied around me that time. I don't remember much of the incident, a few glimpses here and there. But I remember waking up in the hospital trolley several hours later. And I described this as not only the most painful night in my life, but also the most important night in my life. And I remember just lying on that trolley and I just wanted to jump out of my own skin. I was mentally, emotionally and physically broken and I just wanted to jump out of my own skin. And I remember just trying to pull myself off the trolley and suddenly my eyes just landed on this red fire extinguisher that was sitting on the wall. But it wasn't a red fire extinguisher to me, not, not that night. And I remember just looking at it, being like tunnel vision, looking at this extinguisher on the wall. And I remember saying, that's a fire extinguisher. And I says, and that's the color red. But I actually couldn't put them together. I, I, I couldn't put fire extinguisher and red together. And I remember just thinking to myself, oh my God, man, that's, that's brain damage. Yeah, yeah, really screwed now. That, that's brain damage. And I remember waiting for this pang of anxiety to come over me, what I'd lived with all my life, and this panic to, 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 to come over my whole being. And I remember I just sort of leaning back on the trolley and just saying, oh, I can't do this anymore. I give up. Uh, I can't fight this anymore. I give up. I'm done. And that for me, I believe, was the moment that, 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 that was the, 
was the defining moment that allowed me to make a huge change in my life. For my whole life, I was always saying, I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. And that was the story that I told myself. And it was this relentless thinking that drove me anxiety. The anxiety drove relentless thinking. And I needed drugs to get out of that. So I was always fighting reality. But I, I believe that moment was the moment that I surrendered. It gave me an opportunity to drop the story that I told myself and an opportunity to completely restart my life. And and that's really that's that's really where it, where it all started for me. You mentioned there in 2013 getting clean. Was there any I suppose thing that triggered that for you? You mentioned there that the, the perspectives changed. But was there moments where you had gone and looked for help initially, and maybe you've been met with a with a couple of barriers, or was there periods where you had been in centres before and and it just didn't work out for you? No, it's fu- it's a funny one, Peter. My, my only time trying to get clean was the time that I got clean, and I remember talking to a couple of counsellors that I had, like in the in the methadone. I was a, I was a registered addict in the in the methadone clinic, and I'd since talked to the key workers that were there, and and they actually just said I was like, I'm like a machine gun, a verbal diarrhea. So once anyone came near me and talked about getting treatment, I would just hit them with this barrage of stories and excuses. And they used, they used to say, they used to just walk away from me, like absolutely exhausted. I, I was I was very, it was all about self-deception for me. Like I, I fundamentally believe we are the stories we tell ourselves and believe. Like my book isn't even a book about addiction. It's a book about self-deception. And I've since gone on to study self-talk language as a vehicle for emotion and the stories that we tell ourselves. I think it's very important. And my narrative was that I couldn't cope with the world. I needed terror to survive. That was, that was the ego part protecting me addiction and I did not let anything get into that story like I protected that with my life so really for me even my friends and family that tried to talk to me about getting clean I was sort of living this double life where I was pretending to them that I was getting clean I was nearly getting clean I was coming off methadone I wasn't doing heroin anymore where in the reality I was just using more and more and more drugs and things were just getting more and more out of control so it got to the stage where I lost everything. I couldn't get money anymore. I couldn't get drugs anymore. I, my body was giving up. Everything was failing. And that was the moment when I, when I saw help for the first time. Yeah, and I, I don't want to dive too much into the book because it is, a, it is a story in itself. And as you mentioned, there's a chapter on heroin. But maybe for the listeners that haven't heard of your story before, what, I suppose, were the really dark moments? Or is there a couple of, of, of moments that you remember where, you know, these were the rock bottom um, for you before you actually decided, you know, I need to have a perspective shift and I need to improve myself talking and to get myself uh, some help. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, what, what I talk about for, for me, like I can come at that from a personal perspective and the, the, the harm I caused to other people. And for me, like there was this relentless scar and like they often say that um, addiction is not a spectator sport. Eventually the whole family got to play. And that's what happened to me. My whole family got to play in my addiction. Like it got to the stage where I, I sold drugs to fund my addiction. And it got to the stage where I, I couldn't drive. I was so physically worn, so physically worn out, and I was too stoned half the time. So I used to ask my mom and my sister; they were totally unaware. I'd ask them for a lift, but I'd actually be going to meet people, sell drugs, or buy drugs. So some of the incidents that I brought them on that they, that I've only since realised since I got clean that they were aware that something was really bad was going down, and they were scared and they didn't know what to do. And I just was blackmailed to say, "I need to go to this place, or I'm going to be in serious." trouble so they'd be some of the darkest moments for me and, and since I got clean and spoke to my mom and my sister particularly about this was really difficult for me 
they, to go back into them emotions and go back into them feelings and see the harm that I caused. And it was it was sort of a, it was relentless scarring that I caused with them. Like I was I was just digging myself deeper and deeper into a hole. But then there was those flashpoints as well where they were really scared for their own safety as well. But the darkest moments for myself would have been. There was no big one big moment. The seizure was a huge moment for me, but it would have been just this kind of groundhog day existence where I was wait, I was getting up in the morning, I was taking ten tablets to get out of bed, smoking gear, smoke, taking me methadone. But like for what most people don't realize is like most addicts are constantly sick. They're mostly in withdrawals all the time, and once you're that long an addiction, you're just trying to take the drug to get back at some kind of baseline level, which you're never really gonna reach. That's what they always call it, like chasing the dragon or chasing the hungry ghosts it's like make-believe they don't actually exist so you're always chasing that initial hit which you never ever ever get so like you're always just feeling low feeling bad and it was that relentless nature of the anxiety that was inbuilt in that as well it was really that that's that they were the dark moments for me where it was just like just yeah it was, it was just the, the horrific relentless nature of the feelings was was the darkest moments for me you know, it's absolutely fascinating and, and really appreciate you sharing that uh, on the podcast, some of the, I suppose, the stuff that you've went through. I suppose from 2013 on, you spent time in a detox center. How did you, I suppose, what are, are the 2013 to, to the present day, what were the steps that you took um, once you got clean and how did that frame uh, your career today? And how did you get that positive shift uh, back in your life? Yeah, so it all came, like I call the fire extinguisher incident sort of a defining moment in my life. But the 8th of October, 2013, is the, the, my first day clean. That's, that was literally my first day clean. And it was, the, it was a morning that I had like a huge perspective shift. And I remember I was in a detox, I finally got into a detox facility and I was five weeks coming off, her, coming off opiates within that detox facility. And the 8th of October was the first day clean. And there was an energy sort of coming into my body days before that I was, I, I was learning about spirituality, Easter philosophy, meditation. I'd never heard of these concepts before. And I was getting excited about life again. I remember there was like a tune playing in my head, if I could describe it that way. I was like, oh my God, you have a life again. You could have a life again here. And I was getting excited by that. But there was like this under... Other, other energy coming into my body, like this excitement coming into, into me, into me being as well. And I remember on my first day clean that morning, I, I woke up in the farm and I walked out. It was like the, it was like the, the, the morning was beckoning me outside. And I remember walking out and it was a, there was a lovely little farm in the detox that we were on. And it was a beautiful October dew-soaked morning. I remember the blue skies, the, I remember the sun was coming up behind the trees, like this, this spindly tree line because it was autumn. And the dew, it was this dewy morning. I remember the dew drops on the, on the grass just looked like diamonds shining. And I remember even nature, it was a little misty morning. It was like nature itself was breathing on me. It's the only way I can describe it. And I remember just looking around the farm and looking at all these objects that were once hollow to me that now just seemed full of life. And there just seemed to be an energy in the world again. Now, what, what I since realized was when I started doing meditation at a treatment center, they were talking about thoughts come into your mind and thoughts live. And I remember just having a sudden realization, wow, my mind is really, really quiet. So what I've come to realize was that through the, through the suffering of what I went through, I don't know what it was, that it was like me forced my mind into, into this quietness, into this stillness. And once my mind went quiet, anxiety left me because I wasn't struggling with anxiety anymore. So I was fascinated by this relationship between language and emotions. And I was fascinated by why I suffered, why I don't suffer. I wanted to share that with other people. And it was like this intense curiosity to learn about psychology and everything that went with it came into my life. 
So that really set me up. I wanted to do a degree in psychology. So I went to Minute University to do a degree in psychology, obsessed about this relationship between language, self-talk, emotion, mindfulness, and how these all link together. So I've since gone on from that. I've continued to learn. I've continued to be addicted to learning, you could say. And I'm now doing a PhD in Trinity College. I'm in the final year of my PhD in Trinity College, Dublin. As you mentioned at the start, I'm a lecturer in the neuroscience of mindfulness in UCD. And I lecture at the neuroscience of addiction in Trinity College as well. But where it all comes from me, like I, I don't think I, I, won't, I won't be staying in academia. For me, it's all about bringing tangible tools to the real world. And I am really, really, like I'm doing online courses. I do a lot of talks around this idea that language is a vehicle for emotion. We all have a story. Like my story was, I couldn't cope with anxiety. I needed heroin to survive. My new story today is, I'm the happiest person I know. Adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. So for any adverse event I have, or any challenge that comes into me, like, I try to do a reframe and look for the positives and a lot of that is around language I always try to reframe your language and use proactive language rather than reactive language but it's all around these narratives that we have like there's the victim narrative the, the inner critic narrative we berate ourselves in ways that we wouldn't we talk to ourselves in ways that we never would talk to anyone else and we really need to be observing that this this inner narrative this this voice in our heads that can be directing us what to do think about the tone, how it talks was and how, how it is was and how it directs our actions. And that's really the career path that I'm going down now. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to keep on going down this path around self-talk, around the stories we tell ourselves. And I, I deliver this into companies. I deliver this, I'm hoping to deliver it into more skills as well. And just find a way to get people to engage better with their minds and get them to change their relationship with the stories that we tell ourselves. Because it is a vehicle for emotion and it does drive our anxiety. It does drive our fears. It does drive how we act in the world. And really, that's what I feel is it's a big mission in my life right now and where, where the direction I'm going in right now. So for for you then, anxiety, obviously you mentioned there was a massive struggle. What was it like going into the first company or the first corporate setting to give a talk? Is the anxiety that you had the same? Was it a, a really nervous feeling or how did you cope with that? Just to relate maybe to the listeners that maybe aren't struggling with something as uh, as deep as an addiction, but maybe they just can't cope with social conversations. They can't cope with public speaking. And how, how would you, um, how did you go about that? Yeah, great. Um, it's it's really like um, something to understand is right. So anxiety is primarily thinking about the future. It's fear uh, fear of the future. So if if you're thinking it, it lives in, it lives in the future, you're gonna be you're gonna be anxious. If you think primarily about the past, like regrets, missed opportunities, that's where depression kind of lives. So that's why COVID nineteen, especially at the moment, and lockdown and all the uncertainty at the moment, it's like we're thinking about the future and unknown future, and that's what sort of drives anxiety. So for anyone, uh, for me, anxiety was like bodily sensations across my chest, me tightening in my head and my forehead. And for, for other people as well, it might be just dark thoughts and fears of the future. And that, that's, that, that's the essence of anxiety. But what I do now, a primary practice in my life is really around self-observation. So what I do is I mindfully observe my thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations. And I'll give a better way to frame this really. So, so like we are basically, the, we, we think we're the thinkers. Like we, we think we're the voice in our heads. But we're not really, we're the observer of that voice. We can actually take a step back and observe the thinking in our heads. And the way I try to frame this is like, if I looked in the mirror eight years ago, I would be thinking like an addict, I looked like an addict, I felt like an addict, and I had bodily sensations of anxiety that drove me addiction as well. 
When I look in the mirror today, I don't look like an addict. I don't think like an addict and I don't feel like an addict. But the same person is still looking in the mirror. And I believe that's the observer. It's the ever-present I that observes this self, this sense of self. For me, it was the false self. I thought I was an addict. But how was I an addict? How could that be who I was? Because I'm not that person now. So we, so it's only something that, that's transient. It, it doesn't stay. It changes over time. So what I do is, I, I, what you can do is actually observe these thoughts and observe these feelings. And a great way of thinking about this, a great metaphor for this, is like clouds floating through the sky. So sometimes they're dark and angry. That might be difficult feelings, difficult bodily sensations, difficult thoughts. They're dark and angry. But sometimes they're light and fluffy on a good day. They're happy thoughts. They're happy feelings. But we are not the clouds. We are the blue sky, the true self that observes the clouds coming and going. And the thing is that everything passes, good and bad. So what I do is I mindfully observe my feelings and bodily sensations and thoughts on the blue sky, observing the clouds flowing past. And when I go into that self-observation mode and I observe these feelings and I observe these thoughts, I create a detachment from the false sense of self that I thought I was. And that sense of detachment makes you, it, it gives you a sense of freedom. Like you can think rationally because you're detached from who you think you are. Because someone that struggles with severe anxiety, they think they are the anxiety. The anxiety comes in and they think, they're, they're under threat, their, their whole being is under threat. But if you see anxiety as something that comes and goes and passes along the way and you can observe it, then you observe that anxiety, you're, you're the observer instead of the actual anxiety. So back to my first talk, I'll never forget it, I was in it and my first big talk in AIB in front of like over a hundred of the top execs in the company and I was getting anxious. But I remember I, I just went into self-observation mode, I observed the anxious feelings in my chest I observed the thoughts that were going through my mind. I says, right, they're not, the thoughts aren't real. Everything will pass. And I brought it back into myself. Still felt anxious. I still, I still felt the tight feelings. They didn't just go. But because I had that sense of detachment, I was able to go and I was able to do the talk. And I really nailed that talk. And I, and I sort of launched the speaking career that I have today. A lot of the exercises you mentioned there take a lot of mental energy or they're, they're quite active uh, in your head or... Do you keep a diary? Do you actively write down these things or are they all a mindfulness practice for you? Yeah, so so what I what I done when, when I got clean in 2015, like so I, I was going down the real psychology and stuff like that. So in 2015, I started designing what I call the program for life. So the program is basically it's a three-tier program. It's like the, the, the foundations of the program would be spiritual foundations like self-observation, self-awareness, mindfulness, meditation, and all of these different things. The second part of this program is really like values and principles, like values-based decisions, principles-based decisions. So making making your the decisions and your behaviors in life based on things that I've reflected deeply upon. And then what sits above that is really the tools and tactics that I implement in my life on a daily basis. And I suppose for me, because I've, I have um, designed this program, I write about these tools, I talk about these tools, I've sort of internalized these practices. But what I did do at the very start, I journaled about them, I wrote them down, I kept diaries about what I did. And what, what happens is I think, fundamentally, if you start implementing these tools, like you can read about these things, but once you start putting them into action on a regular basis, and consistency is key, consistency and rigor and discipline, 
is the magic word. Like that, that's the magic word of where, where, where it's all at. Like if you want change, you have to be disciplined and you have to do it on a consistent basis. But what happens is then you just start to internalize these tools and it just becomes what you do. Like we, we all don't want to brush our teeth. It's just what we do. So we all get up and brush our teeth. For me, I didn't want to practice self-observation, but I've done it so much that I just internally observe myself, especially when challenging events occurs. So it's sometimes trying to build these habits can be difficult. You have to get over that first initial phase of pushing through the habits. Habit, but then it just becomes something that you do and I think a great way what you've touched on there is basically writing out these things journaling these things putting reminders in your, in your calendar and um, implementing them in your daily life but there's nothing like action like action will define who you are it's all about the action for people maybe that are struggling with a smaller maybe issue with discipline they may not have an addiction but maybe it's something for example like every weekend they feel the need to go out with their friends for maybe the fear of missing out on the social element. But maybe deep down, they know the amount of alcohol that they drink is an issue. But again, they're functioning. They they make it home safely and, and it's not that much of a problem in their head. Is there tools for people maybe that have smaller issues with discipline or around their maybe things that they do or maybe if they have residue from from previous poor decisions that they make, how they can actually start to make better decisions going forward and and hopefully improve their discipline. Yeah, so the, the, in terms of discipline, there was a there was a line I heard not so long ago. It was a guy called Jocko Willick. Um, he's in Na- he was a Navy SEAL commander um, in 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 the states, and he was a leadership expert. And Jocko Willick put, put it this way, discipline equals freedom. So some people think freedom is going out on the rise, going out on holidays, doing what they want when they want. But when I heard this, this idea, discipline equals freedom, it's the discipline that equates to your actual freedom. So if I'm disciplined with my mental health and my emotional world, and I'm disciplined about that practice of mindfulness, it gives me emotional and mental freedom. If I'm disciplined about my finances, it gives me financial freedom. If I'm disciplined about my physical health and I exercise, it gives me physical freedom. I can go running, I can go walk, and I'm gonna have that physical health as I, as I go into later life. So for me, it's that reframe. It's not Freedom is not going out on the rip and, and doing what society says you should do. Freedom is the discipline and the joys that you get with that. And as, as regards to other people that, that are struggling with that as well, I think the, the reframe, the reframe is great. But it's it's really it's really looking at, at, at where are these decisions getting you? Like if you are questioning this kind of stuff and you're saying maybe I'm drinking too much, I would say if you're thinking that you're definitely drinking too much, you're definitely going on the bathroom too much. Because if you're thinking that, it means you're struggling with that. And I think what a lot of people do is like this idea of that, uh, they, they they make their decisions based on how they feel. Like I feel like having fun and going out for a drink, I'm gonna do it. But I think what people really need to do, and 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 many people don't do this, you need to make values-based decisions. So as we were talking about journaling earlier, I've talked deeply about my values and some of my, my values include boldness. Like I like taking risks and being bold and, and just taking a chance in the world, playing, but we've all been dealt a hand, like play our hand, play, they play the cards of being dealt. So boldness is a core value of mine. Accountability is another huge value of mine. I do what I say and industry, I like to, I like to relentlessly put action in every single day. They're values of mine. But what it's funny, what I found in COVID-19 that them values didn't really serve me anymore so flexibility and patience and uh, uh, compassion and connection are values that came into that as well and i'm just really giving these 
examples of values that people hold honesty loyalty kindness or other values that people hold energy is a big one for me like i like to have energy i like to have clarity in my life so i know what i'm doing they're two of my core values so i make values based decisions so I, i'm in recovery now so it's neither here nor there for me but if i was asked to go out on the rip or whatever like that i would just say right will that align will that give me more energy will that give me more um more clarity in my life will that give me more stillness and, and sense of peace and calm in my life and I won't so I, I shouldn't jump and just base that on, a, on on how I feel in the moment I should base it on my values again if you wake up in the morning let's say you, you, you're trying to practice a morning routine or you're trying to implement a physical physical routine into your life exercise into your life say right if you get up in the morning you feel tired you feel a little bit uh, and you say right if you make your decision based on how you feel you're going to turn over and go back to sleep but if you know what your values are you'll say no i want more energy i want more uh, i want more clarity in my life i want more accountability i'm going to do what i say i'm going to do so base it on your values and you will jump up in the morning and you will go and uh, you will go and implement them 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 actions into your life so i think it's really important for people to reflect on what their values are and what they hold there and try to make the decisions based on them values and for anyone if they're struggling to what what their values are there's some nice questions around this and i think what you could ask yourself is if you're the leader of the country what values do, do you think you should have if you are getting married and and you are meeting your um, in-laws for the first time what values do you think they want you to have? So it's a good way of shifting that perspective onto and to get to think of what you hold most dear. But it's really, I think, the idea is, is to make values-based decisions instead of deciding on how you feel in that moment because our feelings change a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah, big time. How would you, for somebody maybe that struggles with values-based decisions that maybe they feel like they're almost impersonating uh, values of, 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 as you said, it's a nice analogy to think about what people would um, like you to be if you're the leader of the country. But how do you stay true to yourself and what ultimately is your core value um, without, I suppose, you know, copy and pasting someone else's or, or or writing down something on a piece of paper that you feel, oh, yeah, I think I'm that or I would like to be that? Is Is it maybe a case of faking it till you make it? And maybe if I want to be a really honest person, I've got to practice being honest all the time and maybe six months down the line it'll be a core value but i'm not very good at that value at the moment yeah i love that and that, that's that's a brilliant question and i think i think there is an element of fake it till you make it in the end and it's really interesting i'm saying don't make feelings-based decisions make values-based decisions but to know your values i think you're gonna feel it <laughs> i think the feeling is there like if i'm if you're if you're acting outside of your values like let's say you say oh, honesty isn't that big a value to me but every time you tell a lawyer it's a little bit of a white lie it's something that you feel it inside it doesn't sit right with you but then you have to realign that like honesty is obviously a core should be a core value of everyone i believe so, and, and let's say like so far boldness is one of my core values but let's say every time i made these bold moves and i took risks and it wasn't really feeling i wasn't sitting right with me anymore maybe boldness isn't one of my core values so i think fake it till you make it pick mentors of yours or people that you aspire to be like to, who's your hero what values did they have and then over time you might realign your values and find out what they really are so maybe you're looking for that that north star that set of values that's going to guide you in the right direction well you don't have to be the pointing directly at it maybe you just have to get close enough and you'll align to it over time but i think it's 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 a lifelong practice it's 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 reflective and i think journaling about it is is, is a key element as well and i think to be always mindful of it as well is, is really important 
there was one t- part I seen recently on your social media that was five habits to I think you call them pulling yourself out of the gutter. Now yeah. they may not even apply to people that would consider themselves in the gutter or or in a really dark place, but they're very very applicable to I suppose a lot of people, and I've tried to implement a few of them myself. Do you want to share those with the listeners that maybe didn't see that post and maybe talk through how you've used them or how you've used them with clients before? Yeah, I'd love to, Peter. It's funny, boldness has come up so much. So the first, the first habit in, in that list was to embrace boldness. I embrace boldness. That was one of the four things. So my book is called Bonus Time. I believe I was given a second chance at life. So bonus time for me is not worrying about what other people think, not comparing myself to other people, not letting things that are outside of my control control my actions. So I'm running my own race and I do it boldly. That's what I like to do. And I always think society's rules don't always apply. Obviously the law applies, but society's rules don't always apply. Like people that cared for me wanted me to go back and get a normal job um, or something that was safe. But my gut was screaming loud and clear. It says, follow your passion and go live it. And I just went back to college and I done, I, I've launched my own business of everything that I wanted to do. So I believe I, I boldly done what I felt. Following your passion is nearly bold. So sometimes don't go with the crowd, go the other way. When other people zig, you zag. So it's really going with your gut, listening to your heart and go with what feels right and boldly do that. Like society's rules do not always apply. And that's the, that's the one thing that I always try to keep keep in the context as well and it's it's nearly like as well you're, you're jumping out of the box you're jumping out of the fishbowl because if you're doing what everyone else is doing then you're doing what everyone else is doing so sometimes it's it's easier to jump outside of the fishbowl there's a great line actually i heard from tim ferris i'd be a big big fan of tim ferris i hope i can remember this so it's like 99 percent of people think they're incapable of great things and therefore aim for mediocrity paradoxically that makes mediocrity the most competitive field because you're up against 99%. So it's much easier to be bold, jump outside of the box, and you're only fighting that 1%. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. In 2017, I, I, I'm obsessed with tools and tactics for life. And I wanted to learn about tools and tactics from people in Ireland, leading executives, leading sports people and stuff like that. So I sent emails, boldly sent emails to all of these people, guessing some of their emails from the companies that they worked with. And I've ended up with mentors. My speaking career is based around these relationships that I've built with these people. John Boyle, who owns Boyle Sports, I think he's a billionaire at this stage. He was one of the people I reached out to. We're now good friends. He invited me over to Malibu. was home in Malibu in Florida there. Only for, I'd be over there only for COVID-19. And we're, we're, we're pals now, which is absolutely crazy crazy when you think of that and the very first meeting I had with John he actually said to me he says Brian do you know why you're sitting here because you're living on bonus time or because you don't give a crap you're living on bonus time you've been given a second chance at life and that's where I got the name in my book so by embracing boldness it just gives you an opportunity and I, I interviewed Amy Huberman one time and, and um, I, I just reached out to her boldly and I says can I get an interview I got the interview and I was saying to her, geez, I wasn't even going to ask Amy. I didn't think I'd get the interview. And that's what she says. She says, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And it's so true. Like, the answer is always no. So you're starting off with a no point. So boldly ask. People might say no. But if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So it's really it back to that reframe and back to that perspective shift. So, um, geez, I went off on boldness there. The, the other habits is uh, excuses. Like, the, 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 take accountability for your life don't be blaming other people for what happened so it's really for me like what we've all been given a, a, a hand in life and it's play the cards you've been given 
don't be blaming other people for, for your problems. Like, I know it's a lot of people in recovery from addiction, like, they often think about how they've been wronged. That's not even, a, this is a lot of people in life. Like, they're thinking about what other people have done to them, the chances that they didn't get. If they come from a, a, a certain environment, they'll be thinking about, well, they got them opportunities, I didn't get them opportunities. But stop making excuses and play the cards you were given. And that was really a big thing. I don't hold any resentments about what I didn't get in life. I just focus on what I, what I do have and I work from there. That would have been one of the biggest things that I'm thankfully Scott the came comes naturally to me anyway. The third um, habit in, in, in that blog post is developing a growth mindset. And really, like, you either have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. A lot of people think they have a fixed mindset, that their talents, that their intelligence and that their abilities are what you are born with. It's innate abilities. But it, that, that's not true. You can build intelligence. Like intelligence is not a single point. We used to, in psychology, we used to think in, you were born with intelligence, but you can build your intelligence. You can, you can build your IQ. You can develop your IQ. You can build skills. So you can, you can become, you can, yeah, and if you do that on a regular basis, you can learn how to learn. I think that's the biggest thing that I have learned. I've learned how to learn, which I believe it's given me ability to learn anything now. Like I, I have a feeling I can learn anything. I put my mind because I've learned how to learn. And that has come from developing a growth mindset. I don't see my abilities as innate. I don't see them as fixed. I see them as a way I can grow my abilities if I work on something. And that having a growth mindset is key for that. And the fourth one is around something I touched on earlier on. It's around reactive language. Like I, I, I change reactive language to proactive language. And a great way of looking at this would be really simply is um, instead of if something happens to you, instead of saying, why me? Just flip it and say, what can I do about this? Because it's even just that little, that, that little bit of language. Like if you actually say, why me? It's like you can even feel your shoulder slumping. Why me? This always happens to me, that victim mentality. But if you say to yourself, right, what can I do about this? It nearly instills a sense of action. You can feel your, your body prepping yourself to your approach and instead of avoiding the situation. So it's really being said, that's where the self-observation is key as well. And why I think self-talk is so important. To be, track the language that you use the tone of the language that you use. And when you catch that language and you catch yourself saying, why me? Or I can't do this. I must do this. This real reactive form of language. Change that. Flip that on its head. Say, what can I do about this? I choose to do this. Or a great one is, they made me feel that way. Nobody makes you feel that way because that's a reactive way. Like you, you can respond to any situation. So change, the, the reframe the language that you use and you'll reframe how you feel. That's a really important one. And then the last one is, is about embracing failure. Like I think a lot of people are sort of afraid of the word failure. You don't want to be a failure, a loser, whatever, whatever, that, whatever that is. But for me, failure is just a step on the ladder to success. There's some great lines out there, but it's a great one with Seth Golden. If I fail more than you, I win. You've got to fail. Like if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. So it's not a good thing to not fail. It's a bad thing to not be failing because it means you're not putting your all in. Like if you're developing a growth mindset, you're pushing the boundaries. So you should be failing. If you want to embrace boldness, it's not going to go your way all the time. You're going to get rejected at certain points, but that's not a failure. It's just another step on the ladder to success. So for me, embracing failure will be another huge one of these. And now when I have big failures in my life, it's like, oh, great, what can I learn about this? So I flipped that on its head. And I believe there would be five core habits in my life that really, really helped me on the journey that I'm on now. They're absolutely incredible, uh, Brian. Thanks for sharing. I'm actually going to have to re-listen to this so I can take notes. <laughs> because uh, that's the worst thing about being the podcast host is you can't actually take notes during. But um, yeah, so we, we covered a lot there. Um 
We mentioned tools and tactics and you're big on that. Is there three tools and tactics maybe for the broad listeners that are, are listening to this that want to maybe improve, uh, I suppose, the podcast? With the reason we set it up was to try and have various different aspects of human performance and how we can optimize yeah. those, how we can personalize people's routines and to build habits and to sustain um, a routine that, that is really positive and to try and look at people's lives and and take them different walks of life and how we can actually get better at everything whether it's your relationships whether it's your nutrition whether it's how you improve your you know your endurance running or your sleep quality or whatever it is but is there three tools and tactics maybe that resonate with you or that you kind of constantly uh, talk about yeah definitely um i've t- I've touched on a few of them two of my big ones will be the values based decisions and the self observation they would be probably two of the most fundamental foundational tools in my life. But really, for me, some of the stuff you've talked about, sleep is important, what you eat is important, what you put into your mind is important, like get off get off social media, get off negative news like that these things are really, really important. But I think um what what my um vibe with, with the listeners and um, from what you described there, I think I would have like I, I do the first words of my book are I'm the happiest person I know, and I genuinely do say that like with, with, with full belief. And I think much of that comes from the morning routine that I set myself. Like I think morning routines are very, very, very important. You're priming yourself for the day ahead, and they are they are of the utmost importance because how you start the day is usually how your day goes. So my morning routine, I'm going to talk about three tools within my morning routine. So I have a morning routine. As soon as I wake up in the morning, I, I have my morning routine and then I exercise. That's how I start my day. But within that early, early session morning routine, I have an acronym known as MAVIC. MAVIC stands for meditation, affirmations, visualization, inner child work, and gratitude. So I'm going to talk about three of them. We've touched on meditation and mindfulness. I'm sure you've had people on that before. So affirmations is the second one for me. So I, I, just to let, let, let people know as well, this, this routine takes me about 10 to 15 minutes. I do like a guided meditation for about five to seven minutes. And then each of the other tools take about 60 seconds to, to two minutes long. So affirmations for me, as I chatted about earlier, language is a vehicle for emotion. And I'm talking about self-talk, the words we say in our heads is a vehicle for emotion. So if, 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 you, if, you, if, you, if you narrate a certain story to yourself, you will believe, like your, your beliefs define how you are in this world. So I simply wake up in the morning and I say to myself, I am positive, happy, energetic, and carefree. I am positive, happy, energetic, and carefree. And you can have whatever affirmation you want yourself. But the thing is, the brain is not as smart as we think it is. Like we think our brains are so clever. There was a great line one time. I used to think the brain was a wonderful organ until I found out who was telling me this. <laughs> the brain is the one telling us this. So the brain is a fantastic organ, but we can trick it very easily as well. And if you say something to yourself long enough, you will, the feelings will come into that as well. So affirmations are a really powerful thing for me. And you can use whatever affirmation you want yourself. I'd say that about 10 times in the morning. The second part, though, the third part, the V in my morning routine is basically visualization. And like, I'm not against the secret. I'm not against all these manifesting things into your life, but I like to, I like to prime myself for action throughout the day. So my visualization techniques would really, I know you'd be in the sport and stuff like that. So for me, if I'm going to do a talk, I'd visualize myself talking evocatively and emotionally and really killing that talk. If, I, if I'm going on a, doing a TV thing or a radio thing, I'll be picturing myself doing, doing, being really clear of mind and stuff like that as well. I, I want to write my second book, Living in the Alps. So I go over to the Alps sometimes in my head and my visualization. 
and I, I'm sitting on the balcony. I can smell the pine leaves. I can smell me coffee. I go climbing up the mountain. I can feel the sun on me back. So I visualize these things and try to will them into existence. I remember um, for my book launch, I wanted to go on the Ryan Turbity show. So I pictured myself on the Ryan Turbity show. Now I was invited on the Ryan Turbity show. I was due on on the 29th of March, but it got canceled because of COVID-19. So I'll have to start visualizing on that again. <laughs> But it's really about taking bold actions because if I prime myself with visualizations, it gives me the strength to make take them bold actions throughout the day. So I reached out to the Ryan Tubby show. I reached out for different things by visualizing on these things. So visualization is really powerful primer to get you to take them actions. And, and when, you're, when you're visualizing stuff as well, like the science around that is, is beautiful as well. I'll chat about that now in a second when I talk about gratitude. But the third part of uh, the G in Mavic in the uh, morning routine is around gratitude. And gratitude truly is a superpower. It really, really is a superpower. And a lot of people obviously have a little gratitude list. But what I like to do is I try to just focus on one thing. I'm very grateful for uh, my nephew in my life, my, little, my two nephews. But my younger nephew, Aaron, he's only three. Beautiful little smile. I wouldn't be in his life today if I was still in addiction. And I would just say to myself, I'm grateful for the joy that Aaron brings into my life. I'm grateful for the joy that a smile brings to my parents when they mind them on a Monday and a Tuesday. I'm grateful for the joy how he connects the whole family together with his little jokes when we meet up at Christmas. And I just really go deep on that. Now, the really powerful part of gratitude and uh, visualization as well, because I visualize a smile, I'm visualizing it right there. I was visualizing myself again back in the apps. I was visualizing myself on the Ryan Turbity show. And these are all enjoyable events. And what many people wouldn't know, like in, in, in the neuroscience and the way the science works behind this stuff, if you're in an environment and you're really enjoying it, it's a really rewarding environment. From an evolutionary perspective, we're rewarded by that. So if you walk into a forest and we find lots of fruit in a tree, big reward, you feel great. And the brain takes a snapshot, gives, fills you full of pleasure and tells you to remember this event. So that's when you visualize something and you're happy, you want to go back there because it gives you pleasure and you visualize that event. Now what happens when you're visualizing something in your mind? You actually fire a large percentage of them same neurons. So the dopamine fires in the brain, it goes down to the pleasure center of the brain, fires in the brain, and you are literally giving yourself a biological dose of positivity. So my morning routine, before I even leave my room in the morning, I give myself a biological dose of positivity that's setting me up to be grateful, to take bold actions, to be more focused and attentive, and just to be just to be in in great positive mindset before I start the day, and then that has a huge impact then on the rest of the day because you're starting off with such a st strong foot. So whatever your morning routine is, you shape it whatever works for you. But I would strongly advise you to set up a. a a morning routine that's manageable because the most important thing is the consistency. That really is the is the, is the most important thing at the end of the day. Yeah, no, we had a couple of people speaking about that before and we mentioned gratitude uh, journaling quite a lot on podcasts, but we mentioned before, I think, about how being more productive, taking an extra 15 minutes before you wake up is is almost counterproductive. But as yeah. you said, the, the biology behind it and the physiology to to wake up and just a half an hour early and, and implement that is... I started doing it um, a lot and I've noticed massive difference in the way I'm, I suppose, my energy, my positivity, uh, the amount of work I get done in the first couple of hours uh, yeah. of my day is absolutely like incredible compared to what it used to be. But your your story there, it, you know, it, it's absolutely incredible to listen to it. It's fascinating. It's, it's motivating. 
I think anybody out there that hasn't read the book to to pick up a copy and to follow you on Instagram, uh, it, it's really good to get that information. Uh, I suppose drip fed during the day, it kind of kickstarts people back into positive habits. But I uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, I, I wish you the very best uh, with, the, with writing the second book and hopefully getting onto the Ryan Tuberty show. With a bit of luck, thanks a lot, Peter. That's it, and I visualise it into existence. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. For sure, look, hopefully you'll be mentioning our podcast soon. <laughs> that's it. That's it, hundred percent. But really enjoy this chat, Peter. It was really great. It was really great. Yeah. Is there any way um, for the listeners maybe that want to hop onto an online course or they want to uh, get a little yeah. bit more information? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So um, the, the website is the best place to go. So my website is www.brianpenny.com, P-E-N-N-I-E. And you can get the book there. You can get um, all my blogs, my videos. I, I, everything really comes through that hub. But I've also, uh, me, me self-talk course, so it's Master Your Self-Talk. I'm launching the next one on the 30th of September. So that one's getting launched then. And um, yeah, it's really, that, that course is really about the, the, the basics of self-talk, the science behind self-talk awareness building awareness to catch yourself getting emotionally hijacked by that and then changing your self-talk so it's a four-week course and it's just some great testimonials come back from the first uh, wave of that as well so that that'd be um that'd be the place to, to catch all that stuff brilliant i'll pop those uh links and stuff into the and link to the course into the show notes for people um, that are listening but again brian really appreciate you taking time out um, and thanks so much for for uh, sharing all the information and your story with us my pleasure Pierre. thanks a lot Thank you for listening to this episode of the Optimize Your Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. And for more information on productivity and human optimization, please follow our Instagram page at Pop Productivity or head over to our website at www.popproductivity.com. Until the next time, take care.